0: So I went to a Walmart yesterday, by the way, centered from reality podcast, Alex Kapitko here, and it's Monday, December 18th. But anyways, I went into a Walmart yesterday. It was the first time in a year or two, I believe, if I don't remember correctly. And I went in there because a coworker bought some really dope sweaters. I mean, I'm talking like crazy Christmas sweaters. Some of them had hoods, some had dogs, some had cocktails on them. And I'm going, boy, she looks awesome in that in that sweater. So I wanna go get some to be kind of flashy and crazy before before I can't, you know, before the holiday's over. So she told me she found them at Walmart for like six bucks, and I'm like, Oh, I can <laughs> I can definitely buy a few of those for six bucks. So there's a Walmart near me in Northwest Reno, and so Sunday evening I'm depressed from the Packers loss, by the way, atrocious loss. Fire Joe Barry defense is horrendous, but Anyways, I get into the Walmart, can barely park by the way, walk through the doors, and I see the women's section has just a shit ton of Christmas sweaters, and I'm going, perfect, so they're going to have a lot in the guys' section. I walk to the guys' section, venture through it, get lost a little bit, and finally make it to the men's section. Not a single Christmas sweater. I walk through the 49ers and Nevada Wolfpack section. I walk through the, you know, Hanes, is it Haynes underwear section. I walk through the Carhartt jacket sweat section. Walk through. By the way, socks and underwear are now in locked uh, cages. Which is not a great sign of the times, by the way, but it's where we're at. So anyways, I walk by the locked underwear and socks and realize I'm the men's section's gone. I'm in the kid's section now. So I go, no, come on. They, they have to have sweatshirts. They have to have Christmas sweaters. They, they have like 500 in the women's section. So I walk three more times. I'm going, I must have missed it. My, I'm not known for having great eyesight. I walk through it again and again and again, and there's just no damn Christmas sweatshirts. So then I saw the line at self-checkout was pretty much to the clothes section, and I'm going, you know, maybe this is a blessing in disguise, so I left. Moral of the story here. It is fascinating to me because the women's clothes section at Walmart and the men's clothes section at Walmart are like just so stereotypical. So stereotypical. Like the women's section has the quirky Christmas sweaters, for example. The men's section has Niners shirts and Carhartts. And it's just... I, and this is not me being condescending or criticizing Walmart. I just found it fascinating that like literally just the stereotype of an average woman and the stereotype of an average man just kind of come to life in the clothing, clothing sections of Walmart to the, to the point where I, I can't even find a Christmas sweater. I just feel like at other stores that sell clothing, if they're selling you know Christmas stuff, they're going to have it for both genders or non-binary folks as well. You, you know what I mean. Like they're going to have a whole range of... But here it was just like, nope, women wear Christmas sweaters, men wear hearts. <laughs> and I don't know, I just walked out with that epiphany. And yeah, I don't have a Christmas sweater now. So I, you know, I was, I wanted to pay tribute to the great Gail Lewis, you know, who signed out of Illinois about three weeks ago. And I probably won't be going back, unfortunately. Uh, but if you guys know another place where I can buy a cheap Christmas sweater in the next like 24 to 48 hours, Please let me know. And I guess, by the way, you know, I always talk about the Fox News fallacy. Well, maybe we should talk about kind of the Walmart security being the canary in the coal mine. What I mean here is that when underwear and socks are locked up, that is kind of a worrying trend about, you know, how we're doing as a society. Anyway, so I will move on. There's a lot to talk about today. I want to talk about potentially a new economic crisis in the Suez Canal that is by Egypt and that part of the region. Obviously, um, the Houthi rebels are firing on cargo ships and people are worried this could really impact the global economy because I think it, what do I have it here, 12% of global trade goes through the Suez Canal, which is the Bab al-Mandab Strait between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And, you know, we already have a shit ton of chaos going on. This would just add to it. So we'll talk about that. First off, though, I want to talk about Donald Trump, guys. He is not well. He's, I, don't, I don't know if he's ever actually been well. But well, he's much less well than he was before. (laughs) It's a lot of use of "well," but it's true. There is a darkness to him. He's surrounded himself with sycophants, with far right nationalists like the Stephen Millers and and you know the Steve Bannons and the Michael Flynn's. Like he's surrounded himself with a very bad cast of characters. He's isolated himself. He's angry at the media. He's angry at Democrats. He's angry at the world and he's seen the polling numbers where Nikki Haley in New Hampshire now has 29%. He has, I think, 43% from the numbers I saw last. So she is closing. She almost has 30. He's closer to 40 than 45. It's an interesting conversation to be had. And so I don't know if he's looking at the numbers and going, I need to be more radical. I need to be crazy. But either way, this guy has gone from They're not bringing their best, you know, in 2015, saying they're sending rapists and murderers across the border, to now just literally saying immigration is poisoning the blood of our country. Before we get into what Trump said, the term poisoning, or sorry, blood poisoning, was used by Hitler in Mein Kampf, you know, his struggle, uh, the book that kind of popularized his anti-Semitism, and in Mein Kampf, he criticized immigration and the mixing of races. This is translated to English, but Hitler wrote, all great cultures of the past perished, only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning. So, you know, Trump has talked about vermin, another Mussolini-esque term. Trump is now talking about poisoning of the blood. And so what happened is Donald Trump said immigrants coming to the U.S. are poisoning the blood of our country. He said this on Saturday, and it just has been rebuked by a lot of Republicans, obviously Democrats, and people are going like, Bro, you're, you're using terms similar to what Adolf Hitler said, which is just just not acceptable. And so here's what he said. He said here in quotes, they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. And this was at a rally in New Hampshire. And then he continued to say, that's what they've done. They poison mental, They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, Not just to three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming from Asia, from Africa, all over the world. By the way, South America, Africa, Asia. I don't think it takes a lot of critical thinking to like go, these are not Norwegians. (laughs) The ethnicity, the demographic group is not Norwegians or Germans or Dutch or Belgians. There's kind of a, a through line, a connection when you look at Africa, Asia, South America. These are not white people. And there is a common trend with Trump, which I I think he's gotten darker. He, you know, the shithole countries thing, talking about how we should bring more immigrants from Norway, talking about how we need to, you know, bring in more European immigrants. There's always been kind of a through line where he's not anti-immigration, full stop. He's more just anti-certain types of immigration. And, And I think he's really saying the quiet part out loud now. He's saying they're poisoning the blood. I mean, it's just so clearly xenophobic to the point of just blatant racism that it is troubling to me. And I think – I don't even think Trump in 2015 would say something like this. I really don't. I think this is a new iteration of him, and it's a lot scarier, and it's a lot worse. And it shows to me that this is a guy – and I've talked about this before. In 2015, he was going to be the voice. He was going to be the fighter. Now he's – he tried that. He lost his re-election, and he feels like he's been targeted by the Democrats. Well, because he did illegal shit, obviously. But I think now he just wants revenge, and this is his revenge tour, and he just wants to appeal to that 30%. He's talked about how he he would be a dictator on day one to shut down the border, build the wall, start the mass deportations, end the war in Ukraine, you name it. And only a dictator or an authoritarian could even say that, because in a democracy, nothing really gets done in a day. I hate to say it, but nothing gets done in a day. That's just not how democracies work. But anyways, this is troubling rhetoric. You know, he's he's called Democrats, opposition party members, vermin. Now he's going to this. I don't think he's, I, I don't think he is Hitler or Mussolini. Sometimes I don't even think he knows the things he's saying. But what I do know is that he has autocratic tendencies. And whether he's an idiot, whether he's smart... He has plans. The Heritage Foundation has plans. Schedule F, I've talked about a lot, so I'm not going to get into it. Heritage Foundation meeting with Viktor Orban. The Republicans are talking about pulling out of Ukraine. Like, we are seeing a moment where the U.S. is internally going in a very bad direction if Trump gets reelected, but we're also going to see a world where it looks like America is stepping back for the first time, and it could leave a world in chaos while the U.S. internally is also in chaos. And again, you have blowhards like Lindsey Graham who downplay it. He was on NBC News, on Meet the Press, and basically he dismissed the idea that Trump's rhetoric was the problem. He was asked how he felt about the use of blood poisoning, and he said in quotes, We're talking about language. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. I believe in legal immigration. I have no animosity towards people trying to come to our country. I have animosity against terrorists and against drug dealers. And look, I, I think Lindsey Graham, I don't think Lindsey Graham believes in all this like poisoning of the blood. I don't think he's on Trump's side on this one. But Lindsey Graham, once again, just kowtows to it, acts dumb, downplays it, and cr- allows this to happen. And, and the thing is, is I keep hearing Republicans say and commentators say, oh, behind closed doors, everyone hates this. They all think this is an awful statement. Yeah, but if you don't say it out loud and you keep just saying it behind closed doors, then you're allowing this to just keep happening. And it's getting worse, guys. It's not getting better. I am no stat, you know, statistician by any means, but all I have to do is just look at the trends and things are getting fucking insane. And these enablers, I mean, I'm glad Governor Sununu, who has endorsed Nikki Haley. He's governor of New Hampshire. He was on CNN earlier and I, I did see that he, came out and just said, this is awful language. You can't say this. Nikki Haley's. Okay. Okay. Also side note, Ron DeSantis said, this is a tactical error. My rule of thumb is that when Ron DeSantis is saying you've gone too far, you've probably gone too far. But anyways, guys, I mean, this is what happens when for the last almost eight years. Yeah. About eight years. This is what happens when you don't tell a guy, no, you don't stand up to a guy. You just hope he goes away. You wish he goes away. You put it on your vision board, Trump gone, it's not going to happen. And so we can't just keep wishing it away. We need strong leaders. But obviously, unless we have a miracle, that's not going to happen. But th- this is just disgusting stuff. And, and the Republicans won't do anything about it. Anyways, I've been wanting to talk about this for a few days now, I would say. And it is the Suez Canal. As I mentioned in the opening, this is the Bab al-Mandab Strait uh, between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And I would say, according to most numbers I see, an estimated 12% of global trade by volume flows through it. And some say 30% of global container traffic goes through it. The problem here is that it might be shutting down because a lot of container ships and other large vessels are not going to go through it because of the Houthi rebels attacking it. And if you look on a map, basically the Suez Canal, you have the Mediterranean, or the, sorry, not the Mediterranean Canal, the Mediterranean Sea above Egypt, and then it goes into the Red Sea below Egypt, kind of, you know, east coast of Egypt, west coast of Saudi Arabia, going into Yemen. And the problem here is that basically, It cuts through Egypt and goes into the Red Sea, and the Houthi rebels have been doing attacks on the Red Sea, and a lot of vessels are worried. The Economist writes here in quotes, The Egyptian Suez Canal Authority said it was closely following events in the Red Sea. Over the weekend, American and British destroyers downed more than a dozen drones over the sea, apparently launched by the Houthis, and I ran back to Yemeni militant group that claims to target ships heading towards Israel. Going further into this, several shipping companies have announced that they are suspending voyages uh, through the Red Sea, which, as I talked about, is a crucial artery for world trade. And I think the bigger implications here are that this is all because of what we're seeing happen in Gaza between, obviously, the IDF, the Israeli government, and Hamas. And this is over 1,000 miles from Gaza, but we're seeing a naval crisis unfolding that maybe could transform the war between Israel and Hamas into a bigger conflict with implications not just of a bigger war, a bigger conflict, but also implications for the world economy. And The Economist has a good piece on this. I'm going to read a little passage here because I think it highlights things pretty well. It says here in quotes, Since December 15th, four of the world's five largest container shipping companies, CMA, CGM, Hapag Lloyd, Maresks, and MSC, have paused or suspended their services in the Red Sea as Iranian-backed Houthi militants armed with sophisticated weapons escalate their attacks on global shipping flows. And basically, these companies have said that their ships would not use the Suez Canal in either direction until there is some sort of safe passage, until the Red Sea passage is safe. And some, some vessels are saying maybe they will not go at all. Others are saying they are going to be rerouted via the Cape of Good Hope, which would take a lot more time. And by the way, the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Town, South Africa. So it's probably not lost on you guys. That would take a shit ton of more time. And the problem here is that these four companies, again, make up about 53% of the global container trade. So if they're either opting out or going around, we are going to see huge bottlenecks occur in the global economy, especially with supply chains. And a lot of economists and foreign policy experts worry that smaller shipping companies, smaller container vessel companies, maybe are going to follow suit and also do this. So even though you have the big four saying they're going to do this right now, you could see maybe a dozen do this by the end or more, and it would be a shit show. Now, looking into the implications, pretty much there are two. You have the risk of escalation or violence and what it means about the world, especially because of the Israel-Hamas conflict, but also you have just the global economy. Let's look at Egypt first. So revenue from the Suez Canal obviously is a huge source of income for Egypt. Egypt is in a horrible financial crisis. Sisi's regime is consolidating power, becoming more and more a liberal Inflation because of monetary policy inside of Egypt is a complete chaos, complete catastrophe. If you guys want to learn more on this, I have an episode called Netflix and Egypt Are On the Brink. It's about a year old, but I cover this entire conflict and just conflict and just catastrophe in in, in more detail. So I'd recommend checking that out if you want to learn more. But in the meantime, basically, Egypt needs this. Some say Israel needs this. Israel, less so. Um, It's less affected. Only about 5% of its trade goes through its Red Sea port. But Egypt needs this because of tariffs, the passage, the tourist, I mean, just everything that's linked to this. And also, then if you zoom out, obviously, this is bad for Egypt, which is already on the brink. But the world economy is also impacted because a prolonged closure of this just would raise costs around the world. Costs of shipping, as you reroute things through Africa, this takes time. Also shipping insurance premiums soar, which is something that's less talked about, but also just as important. And if you see short-term supply chain crunches, this could lead to maybe a long-term rerouting of trade. Now let's go back to 2021, for example. Do you guys remember the Ever Given I do, because it was kind of a interesting topic at the time. But the ever-given was that giant Taiwanese-operated tank or container ship, and it ran aground in the Suez Canal, and it blocked the canal for six days. And this was the biggest story in a lot of economic news and financial forecasting, because this was right in, you know, 2021, when you saw COVID still coming and going, supply chain bottlenecks breaking, and a supply crunch was caused by this. It, this was just like another straw that broke the camel's back, I would argue, in terms of everything that we're seeing now as well. And so six days was enough to intensify the global supply chain crunch. What if this Red Sea security crisis is long going? Because I've talked about this before. The Houthis have declared war on Israel. Israel. And Iran is giving the Houthis very good weapons. See, the misconception here is that all these groups are kind of underfunded and struggling and couldn't actually wage very intensive attacks. The Houthis have very good weapons, very good weapons that I'm assuming the Iranians have given them, and they could make this a long, long process. They're pretty much playing chicken with the global economy right now, and we could see this turn into a long-term economic chaos. The Economist writes here in quotes, if the Red Sea security crisis is perceived to threaten shipping in the nearby Arabian Sea, through which perhaps one-third of global seaborne oil supply passes, the economic cost would be dramatically higher. And we have to remember that as well. Oil, obviously I don't have to tell you guys, oil kind of comes from this region. Imagine if, that, if the Arabian Sea also gets impacted by this. It would be a complete nightmare. And again, if you if you look at a map... They're all kind of close. They're all kind of close. Now, the second issue here is obviously the risk of escalation of some form of violence or a bigger conflict. The Houthis, as I've said, are complex. They obviously have put out the motto as well, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, And basically they claim that all ships heading to Israeli ports are targets until food or medicine and or medicine, I guess, are delivered to Gaza. The problem here is these people aren't very smart and they're not thinking very much because even though they're targeting all ships because they're claiming they're all going to Israel or they're holding all these ships accountable, uh, the, the problem here is that most of the ships being attacked are not headed to Israel. They're not under Israeli leadership. They don't have Israeli ties it's just, you know, 1 in 10 to 1 in 10 ships linked to global trade are going through this this canal. So, the Houthis again are are just trying to play chicken with the global economy. And again, like I said earlier, the reason why this could get bad is because Iran has been training and arming these insurgent groups in Yemen like the Houthis. Obviously, I've talked about this before. Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen, against the Houthi rebels, along with the UAE. And basically, the Houthis have some of the most sophisticated weapons in the region. There's a guy, Fabian Hines, of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which is a think tank in London. And he said here, in quotes, the Houthis have a giant anti-ship missile arsenal at this point, including those with ranges of up to 800 kilometers. So they can target these ships and just make their lives living hell, basically. And so then, you know, you talk about the U.S. and the United Kingdom taking down drones, responding to these Houthi threats. What happens if American troops keep getting injured? What if the attacks intensify? What does that mean for a global conflict? That is also an issue here. It just seems like everyone's walking, walking on eggshells here. And it is scary. What's next? Probably a bigger military response to the Houthis. They're playing with fire, they want a response, they also want a ceasefire, and neither one of those to me seem likely. Whether you agree with that or not, it doesn't seem particularly likely. And basically there's a multinational force led by America, the United States, whatever you want to call it, it's Navy, and it's operating off the Yemeni coast, trying to deter the Houthis, and they've been disrupting raids, firing missiles. Egypt and Saudi Arabia are involved in this, what I mean is helping the United States, and so you have a lot of overlapping interests here and a lot of people on heightened heightened alert. And so it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary. And it's not good for the global economy because we already just have so many different pushes going on right now. So a little bit shorter episode today, but I just wanted to get that out there. I mean, I, I feel like the United States probably does have to respond to the Houthis. Because they are putting Americans at risk, they are putting the global trade at risk, and they seem to be playing with fire. Again, I don't really know how we end up solving this at the end of the day, but like most of this, it's a complete nightmare. Anyways, on that light note, quick episode today. I ended up watching football longer than I was expecting. Seattle, congratulations, I guess. I mean... I needed you guys to lose for the Packers' sake. But Seattle, good job. Good job, Drew Locke. Um, Yeah, I watched that game longer than I was hoping, and so here we are. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. You guys know the rest.